This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Cherishing the Word, a study in the epic battle over truth. I guess we could call this a good old-fashioned Ellerslie message, just straight down the middle, fresh encouragement to our souls to remind us why we live the way we live, why we stand for what we stand for, just a good reminder message to rally the troops, to remind us that our life is not our own, that we have a purpose here on this earth far greater than just surviving the day. The Word of God. When I say the word, the word, I know that was a funny sentence, but when I say the word, it triggers something in those of us that have been groomed in the church of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the church of Jesus Christ, it might just result in a blank stare, but it's a term used in the Bible quite consistently to enunciate something, and that is the revelation of God. So that which is unseen made seen. That which is invisible, made visible. That which is incomprehensible outside of God intervening to express something, actually expressed and made known. And that would be understood as the word of God. For many of us that have grown up in the, in the church, we would immediately default to the Bible. So when I say the word of God, you would say, ah, yes, the 66 books of the Bible. And you would be right. However, what I want to do is, and this, for those of you that have hung around Ellerslie, you're familiar with this, but this is a reminder message. This is to get back to the basics. The Word of God is not just text. The Word of God actually has been fulfilled. So when God spoke to Moses or carried along Moses by his Holy Spirit and said, write this down as a memorial in a book, and that was literally close to 3,300 years ago, that what Moses was being carried along to write was a testimony or a revelation of something greater than little symbols of Hebrew on a piece of parchment. It was actually an enunciation of what we could call a person. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle John says, you know that word, that word, that revelation that was in Hebrew symbols? That has actually become a human That God himself who revealed it has actually taken on human skin and walked this earth. And the word was made flesh. And so what you see, as I I put the word of God up there, and this isn't necessarily a teaching on what the Greek would call logos or logos for those of us that would speak it in in American tone, but which is the word translated as logos in, in in the Bible, in the Greek. But it's just more of a symbol holder for the Word of God. And the Word of God is in text, in person. And I'm going to layer on a third dimension to how the Word of God works. And that is the Word of God didn't just show up and was born as a baby. Didn't just grow up and live a sinless life. The Word of God came to accomplish something that the text foretold. And that is 
he had action, very specific action, and that action is our salvation. And so our confidence is in the word of God. Our faith as believers is in the word of God. That is actually what we believe, and when we believe it, the Bible says we are saved. So in text, when when the word of God is expressed in text, 66 books of the Bible compiled over near 1,300 years of time by over 40 different authors. Extraordinary. This collection of writings is unsurpassed. It is not just in its brilliance, but in the fact of its impossible uh, pedigree. And so we call that the scriptures. And so whenever you hear the word scripture, it is referring to text. It is referring to the word of God revealed in a textual form. In John 17, 17, it says, thy word is truth. And one of the things you're going to recognize about the word of God is that is true for the text. It's truth, which means there is no lie in it. There's no exaggeration. In truth, there is no flaw. And thy word is truth, the text and the person. And then, it came, I know, it's not a very impressive picture, but I didn't want, I mean, when you try and show Jesus in a picture, you get in trouble, you know, typically. So I'm massively diminishing the picture, but just to emphasize that he came in person. And the person, the word of God in person is known as Jesus Christ. And in John 1, that's the great starter package to the, the gospel of John, where he's actually saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And get this, people, the word was God. Whoa, are you saying that that's this one who came and dwelt among us was born of a virgin named Mary in the town of Bethlehem was God? Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying, says John. The word was God, and the word was made flesh or took on bodily form and dwelt among us. You see, this is not a small deal. This is a huge deal. And then the word of God in action. In a very simplistic way, The Apostle Paul calls it the cross, or he says, Christ crucified. In other words, it's not just the Messiah, Jesus, because the word Christ in the New Testament is the same as the word in the Hebrew for Messiah. So if you've heard the word Messiah and you've heard the word Christ, it's the same word. It means the anointed one. And there's one foretold in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, and he's called the anointed one or the Messiah, the one who will come and deliver his people from their sins. And this is the long-anticipated arrival. Well, that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But that one named Jesus Christ had something that he needed to do. And this something was the reason for which he was born. And it's one single day. It's called the fullness of time. In that day, in that day, the New Testament says it over and over again. In that day, this will happen. And in that day, it did happen. And it was the Passover when Jesus was right around 33 years old. We don't know exactly the date. If it was AD 33, that's the classic way of saying it. But technically, that doesn't matter. We know it was the fullness of time, and we know that it happened. And in that day, it's called the cross. And that action of that person that was revealed in that text, the text foretold it, Jesus fulfilled it, and then he did it. And the reason I put Psalm 22 up there, that's that's something that anyone who's gone through Ellerslie is very familiar with. You see, on the cross, Jesus said something. And the text, the scripture, in Psalm 22 enunciates something. See, Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before that day. 
before the cross. A thousand years. And the very first lines of it are, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And a thousand years later, there is Jesus, the one that the text of Scripture, the Word of God in text foretold, the person, on that cross, and he speaks what was written. And he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And every Jew there that was well-groomed and understood the text of Scripture would have thought Psalm 22. All he said was the first line, but to a good Jew, that's all you need to say. And then what it reminds you of is everything else in that chapter. You know what that chapter says a thousand years before Jesus? It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. They encircled me. They cast lots for my clothing. Whoa! In vivid, granular detail, the text of Scripture describes the person of the Word of God and what that person will do in action. You see, this is the credibility or the truthfulness of what we understand is the Word of God. What do we believe? Well, we believe that. We believe the Word of God. Now, if I was going to you know, have a little stretchy type of thing where I could make it go up and down, I would make the person in the middle get really big. And I'd say, now what we believe is Jesus Christ. But technically, the reason we have confidence in Jesus Christ is because the word of God in text foretold him. You see, if Jesus Christ wasn't born of a virgin, if he wasn't of the lineage of David and born in the town of Bethlehem, did you know that he's not the Messiah? And so as a result, we wouldn't believe in that person. But the text of Scripture, when we believe it to be God's word, the revelation of God matches perfectly with the person, Jesus Christ. The Messiah test in what he must be is profound. You know that he needs to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? And that money needs to be thrown at the, in the foot of the temple and used to buy a potter's field? You know that his hands and his feet need to be pierced? He cannot lose any of his bones. Not a bone can even be broken in his body. The form of death that he must die is very, very specific, yet didn't even exist at the time it was being written about. Everything about this one. He needs to receive gifts from kings. They need to bow down before him. I mean, how does that work? Everything about this. He needs to be called out of Egypt, yet he needs to come out of Galilee to start his ministry. Everything about this one known as the Messiah, revealed in the word of God in text, is fulfilled in the word of God in person. And as a result, his action on that cross, we can put our confidence in. Because what it says in that text about that person is that when, and if that person matches that text, then when he comes and he does his work, it will be your rescue. We believe in that what I usually call the triumvirate of the word of God, which I used that word this last week and someone said, what's triumvirate? Tri meaning three. It's the three actions of the word of God together working in harmony and we say, I stake my life right there. And so when you mess with any of those dimensions, say you look at the text and you're like, eh, what happens to the word of God in person? You see, the word of God in person, Jesus Christ, has credibility and authority because he matches the text. So when you mess with the text and you say, oh, that's not important, but I love Jesus. What you've done is you've spat upon Jesus. You said, yeah, you're not that important to me because, you know, I don't care about the text. Well, the text is the basis of our confidence. 
And so you can't mess with the text without messing with the person. What if you mess with the person? Eh, you're not all that. You're just a man. What happens to the cross? Suddenly it doesn't have power to save you. It's just a good man doing a good deed. A good man doing a good deed. Only God can forgive. And as a result, if you don't have God in this picture, if you remove the godness from the Bible, if you remove the godness from Jesus Christ, and you move the godness from Calvary and that cross, you no longer have something that can save you. You see, these are fighting words where I come from. I give my life to defend that. You see, that's what unites us as a body. There's a lot of things that shouldn't be our tripping points in Scripture that we're like, and we make little bands all over the place. We're like, I stand here. I stand over here. Well, you're an idiot over there. We have our bands, and here's what I would say. That's what we all want to jump into. That's, I don't know what shape that is, uh, but the rectangular sort of thing with roundest edges is where we all find our salvation. It's in the Word of God. But not just the text. You could know the text. You could have a high opinion of the text. There's a lot of conservative intellectuals that do. However, what's happened is they put so much confidence in text that they missed all that the text pointed to, which was the person. You see, Christianity is about a person, not just about a text. I don't want to diminish the text, but there are entire bodies all over the world of church, churches gathered together, that everything is about the Word of God in text. And I'm all for it. I'm all for the Word of God in text. But what is the Word of God in text pointing us to? The Word of God in person. And that is where the relationship of us with God comes in. God says, hey, remember me? Yeah, I'm the one it points to. It's all about a person here. What comes out of that cross, out of Jesus' side, is a river. It's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to his church to enable us and empower us to uphold that. And yet there are entire churches around the world uh, that make the Holy Spirit their focus. And is that good? Is it good to have the Holy Spirit in the church? Well, without it, you're dead. So of course, but the Holy Spirit, what is he laboring to do to point us to that? What's the Holy Spirit here for? To establish that? In other words, he's lifting high something. He's showing us Jesus. Who reveals to us Jesus? The Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is doing his job in the church, he doesn't become the focus. He makes Jesus the focus. If the word of God has its proper perspective and proper position in the church, what do we see? We see the person, Jesus Christ. When you study the Bible, study it to see Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit wrote it. And what's he pointing to? Jesus. And so as a result, if I could do it, I'd stretch it, make it really big. I'd make the man in the middle big. But you don't have the man in the middle get big unless you have a strong understanding of that text and a strong understanding of that cross. And so as a result, here's where we stand as the body. The three relationships toward the word of God. So here's my first drawing for you. That's you, by the way. Not, you, you thought I was talking about me, huh? Okay, that's all of us. You see, the word is your personal slave. This is when you roost above the word, and you, you sort of look at the word, and that little triumvirate of, of the word of God. So you might say, oh, yeah, okay. But you take a position above it. In other words, you're, you're more important than the word. And you look at the Bible and you're like, well, I don't know if I like that scripture. Yeah, how about we remove that scripture and you know, maybe diminish this one and explain away that one? You see, because you're so smart. I mean, yeah, you were just born a few years ago and God has always been. 
But his word is lesser than you. This is a very, very common one. We could call it postmodern Christianity, where we are exalted above the word of God and we look at it with a compassionate gaze. So we move our spectacles to the end of our nose and we look down and say, oh, the poor text of scripture. Oh, and people actually think Jesus has to be divine and of God and born of a virgin? I mean, come on. Why do you have to have that conclusion? Oh, and then the cross is, you know, has, to have, has to mean this and has to do this. And we have to say that Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, we're wrong. And so what we do is we diminish it. This is high-level intellectualism that actually destroys the idea of faith and undermines the fabric of Christianity in our day. Very common. And here we have another option. See, this is your relationship to the Word of God. And this one looks pretty good, and a lot of students arrive at Ellerslie with this relationship. In other words, they don't think of themselves above it. However, they don't look at themselves as a servant to it either. They look at themselves as sort of a buddy or a chum. And so if I could put your arm around it, it'd be sort of like this. And so you hang out with the Word of God, you study it, you read it, you throw Frisbee with it. In other words, it's your buddy. However, if your buddy came over to your house and your mom said, uh, <clears throat> son, I need you to clean your room, and your buddy overheard that, and then your buddy's down in your room with you and says, hey, you remember what your mom said? You need to clean your room. How do you respond to a buddy? It's like, excuse me, you're my buddy. You don't tell me what to do. Especially, could you imagine a buddy coming up to you and saying, go home, clean your room? Whoa! No, no, you don't tell me what to do. We're on equal playing field. And so as a result, some of us approach the word of God and we say, it's not commanding me, it's a good suggestion. You cannot relate to the word of God properly from that vantage point. So I'm gonna give you all an inside peek into our proper relationship to the word of God. Living under it. You see, if you're above it, you diminish it and you remove its godness and it makes you God. Now suddenly you know more than God and you define what is true and what is not and it kills you. If you come at it equally, it has no power to commission you and command you to change your life. And as a result, your life will never be changed. But when you come under it and you bend your knee and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, suddenly your life can work. You see, the Bible then is esteemed. The text of scripture is raised high. Jesus Christ is deified. He is God. And as a result, he has on that cross the power to save you. And when he speaks in his word, what do you say? Yes, sir. I will do it immediately, sir. In other words, your response to it is proper. The strange effect upon truth when you roost above. Now, I'm going to try and go through this quick because I don't want to give an undue amount of meditation time on what is being said in the world today, but I do want to give you a fresh reminder that there is a battle over truth. And you are in an environment which doesn't kowtow to those high opinions and those high-level intellectuals who stick the spectacles on the end of their nose. There's a lot of people that look at me and my preaching as absolutely idiotic. And I have a good laugh over that. My desire isn't to appease the intellectuals out there. It's to be right with Jesus Christ and to proclaim the truth even if it makes me look like an idiot. So the strange effect upon truth. Truth is affected and infected when you take an improper position towards it. When you roost above it, when you come in above it and look down on it as if it has flaws and faults. And of course, you don't. In other words, oh, I'm together. I mean, I, I know all things. The word of God? I mean, come on. 
Lucifer, the bringer of light. So when we're talking about roosting above, do you remember the thing that Lucifer, Lucifer is uh, sort of like the proper name for Satan or the devil. Satan, the devil, those are like almost descriptors of who he is. He's the deceiver. He's the, uh, the con man. And then you have other names, Beelzebub and Apollyon. You have these various things, and the church has tried to figure out who, are these different people? Are these the same? Well, we're not going to go into that today. However, we know that the chief architect behind the great rebellion against God and his truth is a guy named Lucifer. It's interesting, but his name actually means bringer of light. Doesn't that sound like a nice positive name? It's like, hey, I could trust that guy. Because what is he the prince of? Darkness. Isn't that an irony? And so the prince of darkness, his proper name means bringer of light. However, as you will see, even in the Old Testament, when you study Hebrew names, they all are like a sentence in and of themselves. They mean something. And what you'll notice is some of the most crooked characters have names like this. They're really positive names. And yet what their life evidences is the exact opposite of their name. You see, he's a bringer of... of light, but not the light that you think. What I would say is he's a bringer of false light, false knowledge. Do you remember the serpent hanging from the tree in the Garden of Eden? What did he say? I have information that God is suppressing from you. You see, there's a tree. What's the tree called? The tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't want you to eat from this because the day in which you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will see And you will understand things that God's like, oh, don't let them know that then. Oh, and so what Lucifer is always doing is he's saying, I have secret information for you. Stuff that God isn't telling you. So Lucifer, a good way of saying this, but this light is a false light that has a singular intention in its illumination. And that is to question the words of God. Did God really say that? So when it comes to the text of Scripture, what does Lucifer say? Are you sure that's really God's word? I mean, who wrote it? And you could say, well, Moses wrote the first five books. Is he God? No, he's just Moses. Huh. Yeah, see, so what I'm saying is, did God write that? Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. But you're saying it's God's word. Do you see a contradiction there? You see, for us as Christians, we don't see a contradiction because God carried along Moses to write it. God carried along Luke to write it. It's God's words written through human vehicles. Think about Jesus. Jesus is called God's word made flesh. Is he God? Well, yeah. Was well, he also a man? Yeah. Does that contradict? No. He's 100% man carried along by 100% God. That's how scripture was written. And that's how the word of God in person is also expressed. You were anoint, the anointed cherub who covers. This is speaking to Lucifer. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. He desired to exalt himself above God. Do you remember that first position, that roosting above position? You see, when you roost above the word of God and think your opinion or your life is more important than God, What happens is you are twisted. And so what it says is you corrupted your wisdom. Does Lucifer have wisdom? Well, he, yeah, yeah, but it's corrupted wisdom. You see, he knows a lot. He's a brilliant uh, guy, if you want to say it that way. He, He would be called a cherub. And he was the anointed cherub. A cherub had four faces. I know this sounds strange. I really don't want to talk about the devil. However, he would have had the face of a man. He would have had the face of a lion. 
the face of an ox and the face of an eagle. And he would have had six wings, because cherubim are described in the book of Ezekiel in great, great detail. And so technically, he would have been the cherub that covered even the presence of God. And yet he lifted up, he lifted himself up because of his beauty and said, look, I am above the word of God. This is what he desired. And when he exalted himself to that position, there was a corruption of his wisdom for the sake of his own splendor. So when you listen to Lucifer, I'm just going to give you a, a word to the wise here. When you listen to Lucifer, the same thing happens to you. It corrupts your wisdom. Oh, yeah, you still have some knowledge. You still have some understanding, but it's a twisted version of it that exalts you, that makes you the center of life. It's also known as sin. The voice of enlightenment. All throughout the age, have you ever heard of the great enlightenments, uh, the Renaissance period, all these different things? You know, every single time there's an enlightenment, it's a diminishment of God. Every single time. Humanism, its entire agenda is to say, you don't need God. Humanitarianism, by its very nature, is saying, we as united humanity, can, we don't need God's aid. We can save the world in which we live. It's a defiance, a thumbing of the nose against God saying, we don't need you. You see, the Middle Ages basically said that all knowledge flows through God and flows through his word. There had been a resurrection of truth and it had permeated the culture of the world based on even the original 12 apostles going into the world to preach it. The world had been changed in many regards, but there was a twisting. Lucifer didn't sleep. He's not just sitting by idly and saying, oh yeah, let's let him have, let's let the world be taken by truth. The false light came. And when that false light came, it came as light. But it was a false light. There's something that God is holding back from you that you can't know, and that is that you have innate knowledge. You see, if you just listen to this Bible, you're missing out on deeper knowledge that you have. And so if you listen to yourself, and you allow our pool of understanding as humans to actually be shared one amongst the other, even if it contradicts the word of God, we can be as God. And so what you see is enlightenment after enlightenment. Introducing the crafty voice, calling into question the obvious truth, beckoning a more generous understanding of the clear command. The famous quote of the serpent is, did God really say that? Now the serpent was more subtle, which in its understanding would mean cunning, shrewd, and crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? The age-old question posed in a million, di million different satanic ways. Is that really what God said? So we take the Bible, and I said it before you. The Bible is under such scrutiny and attack today, but it always has been. It's not a new attack on it. And the statement is, but are you sure that God said that? Is that really what God meant? Because there are statements in the Bible that are so straightforward that it's extremely awkward. And are we sure that God meant that? Are you sure you aren't bringing your Greco-Roman Platonic thinking into your understanding of that text? Most of us will go, I hope not. What is that? When you are dealing with the intellectual society, someone will simply say, oh, well, that's your Greco-Roman Platonic thinking. And you're like, is it? We don't even know what that means. However, it sounds so highbrow that it must be true. Are you sure this was even written by God? Wasn't this verse added years later? Hasn't there been a long dispute over that particular book's inclusion in the canon? 
Didn't some of the most reliable manuscripts not include that verse? But does that verse really match with Jesus' message of love and kindness? I mean, he's not going to actually send people to hell, is he? I mean, that doesn't match with the part of the Bible that I prefer. Would a loving God actually say that? Can truth really even be known? Do you really believe that God would limit himself to be defined by the parameters of such a small and decidedly human work of literature? I mean, isn't God bigger than the Bible? Why would he limit himself to be expressed in and through these 66 books? Hath God said, has God indeed said, did God really say, did God actually say, indeed has God said, did God say, is it true that God has said? Welcome to the battle. This is the front lines of the battle. There's a piece of fruit hanging on the tree. Come on, come on, says Lucifer. Eat. Put yourself above the word. I can show you things. We can make this life all about you. We as Christians have made a deliberate choice, even though we've had the juice of that fruit on our chin. We have repented and we have submitted and we have said, I believe that he is right and I give my life to him. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. The word is dalos, which means craft, subtlety, guile, to lure, to catch with bait. The enemy catches us with bait. And in modern Christianity, I remember it was in Borders, I believe, probably Barnes and Noble too, but they had a whole display called the New Christian. And it's very appealing because it's hip, it's trendy, and it's politically correct. Could you imagine that you could be a Christian and be hip, trendy, and politically correct all at the same time? You could be popular with the world at the same time, be right with God? Hey, sign me up, says the vulnerable idiot in all of us. In other words, every single one of us is susceptible to this con game, which is why we have the word of God. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a con man out there, and that con man wants to eat you for lunch. So you must be aware that there is a lion. And he's a roaring sort of lion, makes a lot of noise, and he's roaming about seeking to devour. So you must be on your guard. Paul says, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. And I would say for most of us as modern-day Christians, that's not true. We are ignorant of the enemy's devices. We are unfamiliar with the battle over the soul. So dalos, that's our word, so I'm going to build on that word as we progress. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by dalos and put him to death. Who were they trying to take? Who were the chief priests and scribes attempting to take? The word of God. And what were they trying to do to it? Do to him? Put it to death. You see, this is the work of Lucifer. It's amazing because even in the religious system, it happens. I mean, that was the religious system. That would have been the equivalent of the Christian leadership of our time, the best-selling book writers, the main voices of today. What are they doing? Taking the word of God and putting it to death? Whoa, that sounds like a very bad idea. It is, but it's not new. It is an old trick of Lucifer. It says Satan entered into Judas. What was Judas doing? Betraying the word of God into the hands of sinners. You see, for the sake of his own comfort, he betrayed something. 
You see, we cannot roost above. We cannot just be a buddy, but we give our life and are willing to lay down our life for the establishment of the word of God in this generation. Postmodern Christianity. I don't want to be, you to be intimidated by the word postmodern. I know people throw it around. And that's not what my teaching is on. However, it is a very important idea. We have moved in our way of thinking and our way of processing in our generation to a place where there's a very mushy mindedness. In other words, you can believe in Buddha and Jesus at the same time. And a lot of people would pat you on the back. In fact, you would be far more uh, likable to the world if you could say that, oh, Buddha was just a great guy. Oh yeah, and I'm also a Christian. Then suddenly, all the sting comes out of your Christianity. All that offends people about Christianity is emptied out. It's like, but you like Buddha? Like, yeah, yeah, good guy. And then suddenly everyone's like, yeah, you know, you're a good guy. You see, it's hip. It's trendy to be mushy. Jesus says, look, guys, I'm the only way to the Father. Well, don't quote that one in the modern world. Because if you say Jesus is the only way, what are you saying? Every other way doesn't work. Oh, you wouldn't dare say that, would you? Jesus said that. The Word of God said that in text, in person, and in action. That is the only way to the Father. Oh, how uncomfortable, how unsavory, how right. There's only one way of salvation. Either we uphold it and serve it and become a slave unto it, called a bondservant, a bondslave unto the Word, or we deny it. We try and chum around with it. As long as everything's easy, we'll hang out with it. But if things start to get a little challenging, hey, whoa, hey, I'm not with him. Are we with him or not? So postmodern Christianity, I'm going to give a different name for it, which is crafty Christianity. There's a whole version of Christianity out there that is playing upon our weaknesses and saying, well, God, we all know that God's love, right? And we all nod. Well, yeah. So isn't it? Doesn't it make sense that hell is a doctrine that was just manufactured, you know, by these mean-spirited, mean-hearted, condemning-minded people? And we're like, yeah, that's true because God is love. He wouldn't send someone to hell. You see, what we miss in the fact is God is love, and that's why he came to the cross. You see, the love of God, don't wait for the love of God to be expressed by an empty hell. It's like, oh, we all show up at hell for a visit. It's like, yeah, it's empty. Oh, God's love. No, but a cross. The cross is the symbol. The ancient symbol of love is God giving up his life to rescue us from that judgment. So Christian ideas served up with dalos with the intent to lift you above the word. This is what crafty Christianity will always do. It comes packaged as Christianity, but with an agenda, and that's to exalt you to the same place Lucifer exalted himself. It's all about you. Didn't uh, some guy come out, uh, some pastor from down in Houston come out with a new book about the fact of us being I am? Uh, that's a new book, one of the best-selling, if not the best-selling Christian writer of our day. Oh, so, so am I supposed to interpret this, that life is about us, and that now no longer is Jehovah the I am, but now we are? Uh, I don't know about you, but those are fighting words. So let's talk about Christian Christianity. You know the real thing? The one that doesn't exalt self, but the one that exalts Jesus. Christian ideas served up with truth intact. Wouldn't that be nice? 
with the intent to put the word in the highest place. Who takes the highest place in this body? Not the pastor. Technically, the pastor should take the lowest place. Jesus Christ is the head of his body. He is the one exalted. Who do we bend our knee to? To him. If Eric Ludi ever gets in the way and begins to shroud the clear vision of Jesus Christ, you run with everything that is in you. This is not about men. This is about Jesus. He has accomplished it. If any opinion that I have contradicts the word of God, you don't listen to me. You listen to the word of God in text, in person, and what he did on the cross. If I give you any other gospel, any other means of salvation outside of faith in that word, in text, in person, in action, don't listen to me. That is salvation. That is your only hope. The only thing I'm doing here and the reason you're here is because we're standing in agreement on that. So listen to Christianity being announced without dolos, without that craftiness to try and exalt man. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, says Paul, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God with dolao. That's the dolos with that same subtlety of Lucifer. We are not handling the word of God the way Lucifer does. He twists it. He, he, he causes it to be something lower and to exalt everyone around him. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And listen to this description of Jesus, who did no sin, neither was dolos found in his mouth. May it be said of us, as ministers of Jesus, in agreement with the Holy Spirit that lived in, the, in Jesus, may we also not be found with dolos. When we preach the word, may we preach it without dolos, without anything that would lead to the exaltation of man, to the crafty questioning of the integrity of truth. Are we sure? I mean, how do we know for certain? Because God gave it. And God does all things right. A quick look at the effects of dolos upon the truth. When crafty Christianity speaks, I'm going to try and go through this quick. The Bible. So there's a question. We're going to call it the serpentine question. There was a serpent's twist. Is it really God's word? Are you sure it isn't just the words of good-intentioned men? So one of the leaders of what we could call the postmodern, the crafty Christian movement today said the Bible never calls itself the foundation. The Bible is more a question book than an answer book. The Bible seems to explore mystery, not clarify it. The facts are not as important as the feelings, and postmoderns tend to feel after him. If you listen to any one of those statements, and if I were to go off and get distracted and start preaching just on that quote, what you would see is it doesn't feel wrong. Every statement is like soft and reasonable. But every one of those statements, if you remove the Bible from being the foundation, unless you build upon something, when the winds and the rains come, your house is going to be knocked down. What is that something? It's a rock. What is that rock? It's the Word of God. And if you remove the Word of God from being a foundation in your life, you have nothing to stand on. So that's just getting you started, but let's keep moving. The more I learn from Jesus, says this uh, founder and father of the emergent church, the more I learn from Jesus, the more I cringe when I read passages in Exodus or Joshua where the God of love and universal compassion to whom Jesus has introduced me, allegedly, you see the word allegedly? I made it big for you. Allegedly commands what today we would call brutality, chauvinism, ethnic cleansing, or holocaust. 
No, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't go back to the Old Testament and go, oh, how fun is this? Judgment, yeah. I'm just as uncomfortable, but the Spirit of God is saying, Eric, is there anything in you? You see, Jesus died to rescue me from the just punishment of sin. What bothers me is that word allegedly. Because what does it say? Yeah, supposedly God said this, but he doesn't believe God said it. What happens if we doubt the book of Joshua? Well, suddenly we're doubting the whole thing. Ironically, the book of Joshua named after Jesus is named Yeshua, same name as Joshua. It's like the book of Jesus in the Old Testament. What Jesus came to do, which was bring his people into the land of promise. Don't put the word allegedly when you're talking about the word of God. He puts himself above it and questions it. Not on my watch. I see the Bible changing. This is excerpted from a video. I see the Bible changing. I don't see it as stagnant. And so for us, as a community of Christians, to say we need to believe this one thing and hold to it tightly and make sure it's never questioned, that's a real waste of energy with all the things we could be doing in the world. If you don't hold to something solid in your life, if you don't know that something is true, you have no hope. You have nothing solid. And when winds and rains start beating against your life, you'll crumble. I'm here to tell you there's something you can believe in. And it's very defined and very distinct. The word of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ has come. And his death on that cross is what you needed. And when you turn in simple childlike faith and say, God, you have done it for me. And I receive all the benefit of that. You find yourself rescued. That is something that will never change. This is two plus two equaling four. God has done it equals your salvation. Put your confidence in that. Truth. What happens to truth when you roost above the word of God? The facts are not as important as the feelings. The postmoderns tend to feel after them. What if something doesn't feel good? Well, most of Christian truth doesn't feel good to my old man and to my flesh. To deny myself, to pick up my cross and follow him to forsake everything I have, to take my spike nard and break it open on Jesus' feet, offends my old man. Just as it offended Judas. Judas, after Mary of Bethany poured out that spike nard, went and betrayed him. He was the one that held the money, and he was offended. So is my old man, and so is yours, which is why we must allow our old man to be crucified in Christ, that a new man may live that we would esteem the words of truth, that they would call upon our soul and even commission us to come and die, to pick up a cross, splintery and all, the mockery, the public humiliation. And we would say, for your sake, Lord Jesus, I do this. I don't live for me. I live for you. Thy word is truth. The goodness of man so the serpentine question of today is, is it true that men are sinful? So this is a quote from uh, one of the leaders of the emergent movement. Is it true that men are sinful? Couldn't it be that we are only misguided and in need of loving acceptance? I mean, to come to the conclusion that we're sinful, I mean, that's sort of harsh. To say that God is literally at enmity with us and that we would be cast into outer darkness if we don't do something. I mean, come on, way too harsh. Overboard. So couldn't it be that we are only misguided and in need of loving acceptance? 
Is it not true that we possess within ourselves a beauty, a glory, a rightness, and a godness? I don't know about you, but last time I checked my own inventory of goodness and rightness and godness, it wasn't there. I don't have it in and of myself. He has it. And if I think that I have something to bring to the table, I empty the word of God of everything it says. And I diminish it because the word of God it says is, you have nothing to bring to the table, Eric. And I bend my knee and I say, I I believe that. But God, is there any hope for me? Because I have nothing. I can't save myself. He says, well, the Father so loved you that he sent me. And my life was given for you. Put your hope and your trust and your confidence in my work, Eric. And that's what you have. We can say we believe that humanity is evil and depraved and that we enter the world this way, but I don't think this fits the Christian story, nor do many of us truly hold to it. Well, buddy, I believe the word of God over you. Here's another quote. Sorry to give you all these quotes. I know they're somewhat depressing. Humankind is created as God's partners, not God's enemies. Sin does a lot of damage to that partnership. It disables us. It discourages us. It disturbs us. But it never destroys the bond that exists between God and humanity. Whoa, 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 whoa. So what you're saying is sin does not destroy a bond that God and humanity have. He doesn't believe that that bond was ever severed. And as a result, what happens to Jesus? What's the purpose of Jesus? What happens to the cross? Why did he go through all that? You see, if that bond wasn't severed, if there was no need for a reconciliation, what happens to the life of Jesus? He's diminished. He's demoted. And then listen to this line. Humankind is inherently godly and offers God-inspired goodness. No, it doesn't. Sorry to burst the bubble, people. I know that sounds a lot more pleasant, but we have a problem. And that problem is only solved in the person of Jesus Christ. We are at enmity with God, in rebellion, and outside of a work of saving grace by the word of God. We have no hope in this world because there's no inerrant godness in us. There's no inerrant righteousness inside of us. It's filthy rags. Please, Lord Jesus, I trust you to save me, and I know that it will. Tony Campolo, sorry to give a name. We affirm our divinity by doing what is worthy of God's. Robert Schuller affirms our divinity, yet does not deny our humanity. Isn't that what the gospel is? Huh. Uh, no. No, that's not what the gospel is. His divinity. Here we are, limiting the divinity of Jesus and in, increasing the, our divinity, our godness. That's what divinity means, godness. I am not God, just to be clear to all of you. In and of Eric, there is nothing good. I am lost I'm hopeless. My hope rests in something outside of me. And it's a person revealed in the text of Scripture who came 2,000 years ago. His name is Jesus Christ. And what he did on that cross perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. And when I believe in him, his righteousness, his goodness is bequeathed and conveyed to me. And so the reason I can stand boldly in the throne of grace before a perfect God is not because of my goodness, but because of his that has been gifted to me in and through the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, Another, same guy, uh, has another quote. The hymn writer who taught us to sing Amazing Grace was all too ready to call himself a wretch, forgetting our divinity. And then he quotes a guy named Eric Fromm, and I gave a little description of who Eric Fromm is. 
He's a godless atheist. He does not believe that God even exists. This is the wrong guy to quote. How about we quote scripture? This guy quotes a godless atheist, and he's the author of a book, and let me just prepare you. The book is called, You Shall Be As God. That's the quote of the serpent in the garden at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This man, one of the leading voices in Christianity, quotes this man in the context of saying that John Newton's phrase to call himself a wretch was misguided. He says, Eric Fromm, one of the most popular psychoanalysts of our time, recognized the diabolical social consequences that come about when a person loses sight of his or her own divinity, godness. As a result, when you see these books coming out today that are exalting you to the I am position, oh, come on, say it. Speak these words. You guys remember, it was a long time ago, but Shirley MacLaine went on public television in some sort of movie. She stood on a beach and declared that I am, is what she yelled out. I am God. That is the most disturbing thing that could ever come from the lips of a human. There can be no greater rebellion against the word of God than that. And yet in masquerading in and amongst the church of Jesus Christ today is an epic battle over this very simple truth. The position of self, the serpentine question is, did you not know that you could be as God? Uh, so the founder of the emergent church movement says, I'm trying with Ken Wilber's help to make clear that I believe there is something above and beyond the current alternatives of modern fundamentalism, absolutism, and pluralistic relativism. relativism. Don't get distracted by all that. What I want you to understand is Ken Wilber's help. Ken Wilber teaches his disciples, and he has a lot of them. The next two quotes are both Ken Wilber disciples, this man being one of them, to declare their I amness. This is what he does. He is not a Christian, and yet these Christian leaders are submitting to his discipleship. It is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Who would do that? Ah, good, fair questions for our day. We've lost the most basic stuff. You don't Study under a man that declares that you are God? That is not healthy. The word of God is in direct contrast to that statement. And then here, one of the guys that I've uh, unfortunately had to speak a lot about over the years, for a mind-blowing introduction into emergent thinking and divine creativity, he advises his audience to spend three months at the feet of Ken Wilber. I just told you who Ken Wilber was. No, thank you. No, I, I, I prefer to sit at the feet of Jesus the way Mary of Bethany did. I want to listen to his word. That's what I trust. So what happens to the gospel when you add the serpentine question? Is that really what Jesus came to accomplish? I mean, if, you, if you're suddenly God, then what does Jesus matter? If you were never cut off from God, what good is Jesus? It empties Jesus of any purpose. It spits upon the cross. It empties of it his power and its efficacy of our need for salvation. So here's a quote uh, from a guy who's been quoted quite a few times already. Let's suppose a TV news reporter walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have 30 seconds before the commercial break. Can you tell us in a sentence or two what the message is about? What would he say? Oh, this is going to be fascinating. This is what... He says, Jesus would say, everyone needs to rethink their lives as individuals and we need to rethink our direction as a culture and imagine an unimagined future for our world. He might say, because the kingdom of God is here, you can count on this. 
I don't know how many of you were just changed by that profound quote. That's pathetic. Jesus came and did preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and did proclaim a kingdom, but with it came a hard message. If anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross, deny himself. You see, Jesus came and did give a message. It's a death to your old life so that you can live. And you must come unto him with the faith of a little child, trusting that he is able to bring you salvation. It's an invitation for all nations, races, classes, and religions to participate in this network of dynamic, interactive relationships with God. This gospel or secret message of Jesus uncovered unites people, peoples on a peaceful journey to bring healing, love, justice, mercy, humility, reconciliation, and hope to the world. The kingdom of God, then, is a revolutionary countercultural movement proclaiming a ceaseless rebellion against the tyrannical trinity of money, sex, and power, and a breaking down of injustices such as racism, nationalism, consumerism, colonialism, and self-destructive ecosystems. This man, who I'm quoting right now, believes that saving the whales is a far greater virtue than saving your virginity for marriage. Just to give you an illustration, he thinks that's pathetic. It's old-fashioned morality that is distracting the church. It's far better to save this planet. This planet is going to be destroyed with fire. I say let's save souls. And if sexual deviancy is entrapping souls, I say let's see them set free from it so they can live to the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's a, another quote. I think this was the answer to a question in Christianity Today of if you had a Twitter message, so there's a certain amount of characters in a Twitter message, and you could share the gospel, what would the gospel be? And this is what the answer was. I would say that history is headed somewhere. Uh, if I have a few words, I hope I could use them better than that. The thousands of little ways in which you are tempted to believe that hope might actually be a legitimate response to the insanity of the world actually can be trusted. And the Christian story is that a tomb is empty and a movement has actually begun that has been present, in a sense, all along in creation. And all those times when your cynicism was at odds with an impulse within you said that this little thing might be about something bigger. Those tiny slivers may, in fact, be connected to something really, really big. I don't even know what to do with that. You have an opportunity to share the gospel. I hope and pray you share something more clear than that. The man Jesus. What happens to the man Jesus when you roost above the truth? The serpentine question is, is there really a necessity that we push the fact that he was supposedly born of a virgin? You know that this is a huge question. Why does it matter? There's people that don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Why does it matter? Because if he wasn't born of a virgin, he's not your Messiah. The Old Testament states he will be born of a virgin. So if he's not, guess what? He's not the one promised. That's why. Fairly simple. Does it really matter if we claim he was God in the flesh? Doesn't it seem a bit preposterous that we have to believe he supposedly rose from the dead to be included in the community of those who call themselves Christian? Here's a quote from one of the leaders of that movement. I know that rethinking the nature of God, the state of humanity, and the essence of sin leads to rethinking Jesus. At least he's honest about that. You see, when you question the word of God, when you question all these aspects, what happens? Well, we have to understand who is this guy now. Because when you understand sin and you recognize that he must save you from it, it makes sense. But when you discount sin and say there's actually been no breaking of my bond with God, no matter what, I'm still, I have godness in me. I have righteousness in me. 
I'm fine. Well, then who's Jesus? What is this? It leads to rethinking Jesus. The church today is probably preaching too much Jesus at the expense of the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that I've been accused of focusing too much on Jesus? It's like, thank you. Thank you. That's, you know, I've been accused of a lot of things that I didn't necessarily want to say thank you for. But that one, I take that as a compliment. The end result, when the word of God in textual form is diminished, it leads to a diminishment of the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Do you recognize that there is a battle in our age, in our generation, over the word of God? If you don't know it, you could fall into the trap. But if you do recognize it, two trees, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, little serpent hanging from it, beckoning you over. And then there's another tree called the cross. And how you choose that those two trees defines the eternity of your soul and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him, by dolos. You see, these chief priests and scribes, there are workers out there that are threatened by the word of God. And yet the whole while, you would think they were the protectors of the word of God. And yet they're threatened by the word of God. I say, let's not join them. Let's join the word of God. And let's bend our knee and exalt the word of God. So I excerpted this last section. I'm going to go through it as quickly as I can because I, you have a lot more notes there than I'm going to go through here. But I'm going to just read through. This is excerpted out of the majestic Jesus. It's a meditation on what I call the 10 building blocks of awe. If what God's word says about God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ, throughout the entire Bible is true, then. You see, if we believe that the text of Scripture, the word of God in text, is true, then what does it say about the word of God made flesh? Whoa, that means that would also be true. Which means that what it says about Jesus is true. And if that's true, then listen to this list. These are 10 building blocks of awe. And one of the things I can guarantee you is crafty Christianity diminishes every single one of them, if not completely ignores them. This is our savior, the one who has come to deliver us. It's what leads us to worship, to bow down in humble prostration, declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Awe-striking thought number one. He is from of old, from everlasting. He has no beginning and no ending. It's actually what it says. In Micah, it says his beginnings, his goings forth, the one who will be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. Well, there it is in Micah 5.2. Awe-striking thought number two. He is very God of very God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So what you're saying is that this Jesus was actually God in substance, not just God in message. It's like, oh, that was a divine message. No, no. The messenger himself, the one in human skin, was actually born of a virgin. Yes, so he was a man in human skin, but the paternal or the fatherly input into his life was divine. He was, in fact, in body, the son of God. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, the Nicene Creed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Whoa, whoa, I thought Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago. Well, yeah, in a body. He's God. You didn't know that? 
For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Ah, striking thought number three. He is the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth. So if I said, who created the heavens and the earth? You could go back to Genesis 1 and say, God. And you'd be right. However, you know what the Bible says? That text, that word of God in text makes something very clear. That it is the word of God that created. God spoke his word and it created. And so the rest of the Bible actually enunciate who the creator was in the beginning. It was actually one that you know as Jesus Christ. That's why we call it an awe-striking thought. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The one who walked this earth 2,000 years ago created the heavens and the earth? That's right. That's what the Bible says. And I, for one, believe it to be true. All things were made by him, speaking of Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. Whoa, do you believe the word of God? Do you submit to it and declare that it is Lord? Ah, striking thought number four. He is. Um, <clears throat> he is. You aren't. He is. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? That's the proper name of God revealed in the Old Testament, the burning bush. Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? And God gives a name. And he says, this is my name that you can hold as memorial. What is that name? Well, in very simple English, it doesn't make a lot of sense to some of us, is the I am that I am. Well, it's a hard word grammatically to work with, but it means the one who always was, who is today, and always will be. It means unchanging. Immutable is another big, huge academic word for it. He cannot alter. When he says it, he will do it. He's the I am. So the way that he says it is I am. The way we say it is he is. So, he is. Now, you may know that about God in the Old Testament, but did you know that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament? Don't you realize that he is very God of very God? So if God is, guess who else is? Jesus. He is in truth Jehovah God, the I am that was, is, and is to come. The revelation of the I am, of the Father. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Who is the Father? The I am. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Yes, and he's saying exactly what you may be thinking he's saying. He's actually saying, before Abraham was, I am. That's a strange grammatical statement. He's declaring himself to be the I am. Uh-huh. If there's anyone on earth, and the, by the way, one of the reasons the Jews crucified him was for what's called blasphemy. It's because he declared himself to be God. Jesus himself, the truth, who cannot lie, in his mouth was found no guile, no dolos. He said, I am. You see, it's a bad thing to say if you're not. But if you are, it's called the truth. Ah, striking thought number five, he is the word of God made flesh. The word of God. You know that text? In body form. He is the Bible brought to life, breathing, walking, talking, healing, and rescuing. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Ah, striking thought number six. He is the perfect fulfillment of all prophecy and the promise of the Christ. 
with divine right to rule and control, if he matches with that Old Testament, he has to match perfectly, but if he does, he is that Messiah. And as a result, every knee bows. And we say, he has the same authority as the word of God in text has. He has authority over my life. And guess what? We are believers that say he has matched that test. And he has authority in our life as Lord, as King, as Master. Our striking thought number seven, he is over all. He has been exalted to the highest position and all things are under his feet. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Father has set Jesus at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. I don't know where you find room for you to be exalted and to be at all about you. It's all about him. Your salvation is in that one. That is our hope. That is our strength. Our power and our authority isn't found in us. Dig in your own pockets. You're not going to find it. My power, my authority is found in him. It's confidence in him. Our striking thought number eight. He is the only savior. That means without him doing what he did, we have no hope. Simply put, and I don't know if you've ever been able to wrap your mind around that, but if God doesn't have the nature that he has, we're sunk for all eternity. But he does have a nature that is inclined to your rescue and your benefit. And he is the only savior. Outside of him, no man can be saved. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus Christ. There is a sign given that we might recognize the arrival of his majesty. The Old Testament, the word of God in text, reveals that he's going to look like this when he comes. How will we recognize him? David arrived at the camp of the Philistines for battle. Do you remember that? It had been 40 days and Goliath had boasted in the valley of Elah. David arrived the way the Messiah would arrive. How did, how did David arrive? With bread and cheese as a servant. That's how you'll know when your deliverer arrives. Isn't that an amazing thought? How did Jesus arrive? With bread and cheese as a servant? No, that's, I can't even comprehend this God of God, very, God of very God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's going to come as a servant? Impossible. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, speaking to the shepherds, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And he says this, and this shall be a sign unto you. And he's going to declare a sign. This is how you will recognize your Messiah. He's born. How will you recognize him? What is the sign? Brace yourselves for awe-striking thought number nine. God of the heavens and the earth, seated in such an exalted high position, we are in rebellion against him. Nothing in ourselves of goodness or righteousness. We are deserving of being cast out. Yet, he loves us. This God comes to this earth, is born as a baby, but the sign is given. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, he, um, let's just read the scripture. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
How will you recognize him? He's going to be wrapped in peasantry. The very thing that used to probably most likely wrap the ankles of little sheep that were being prepared for sacrifice so that they would be pure and spotless and their ankles wouldn't snap. Swaddling cloths. Peasantry. Shepherds were the lowest of low. A manger. What in the world's a manger? A feeding trough. It's known in the Greek as a fotne. A feeding trough. You will know him. It'll be a sign to you because the great I am will be a baby wrapped in peasantry lying in a feeding trough. That's how you'll know him. He, the one who is, the one who created the heavens and the earth, God himself, the one who is holy, 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 the one who has measured the waters of this earth in the hollow of his hand, the one who medied out heaven with a span, the one who comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, the one who weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance, the one to whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket or accounted as the small dust of the balance, the one who, when he heads off to war, there are none that can stay his hand, the one who sits as king between the mighty cherubim, above all, over all, and in control of all, the God of all the kingdoms of this earth, the one who can bind the sweet influences of Pleiades and loose the bands of Orion, the one who can set the dominion of his ordinances in the earth, he can send forth lightning, number the clouds, and stay the bottles of heaven. This one was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a filthy animal feeding box. Awe-striking thought number 10. And we are those swaddling clothes. When you grasp the mission of Jesus Christ, not to just forgive you, not to just trample under his feet the power of sin, but to make you his clothing, that he is not just wrapped in swaddling clothes of peasantry and made food back then, but he then condescends to say, I want to use your life, your body, as my clothing. And once again, he humbles himself and does the work of a savior in and through what is known as the church of Jesus Christ. Awe-striking is too small of a word. That this God, the great I am, that is being diminished in the age and generation in which we live by the very church that is supposed to uphold his name, this Almighty One deserves all praise, all honor, and all glory. And we are His chosen vehicle through which that grandeur and that majesty is to be revealed. I say we humble ourselves in absolute bewilderment and say, I have no idea why you would want to use this. But if this is your chosen vehicle, you take it. It belongs to you. Whatever you choose to do with it, how whatever sufferings, whatever crosses this body may face, I say you are deserving and worthy of the glory. The Almighty has condescended to be wrapped in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.